On this episode, we will interview Liam Elkind, Kari Hustad, and Isabella Smeets about their experiences on the corona gap year. My name is Liam Elkind. I am a rising senior uh, at Yale, although I'm taking this year off. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, his, and I am a co-founder of Invisible Hands, which is a newly formed nonprofit group of thousands of volunteers delivering food, medicine, and other essentials to those most at risk during the pandemic, including the elderly, the immunocompromised, the sick, people with disabilities, people experiencing food insecurity, and more. Yeah, yeah. So what was was the impetus um, to, to thinking, oh, this is this is something that this is a problem and yeah. this is a problem that that I that I can solve or I can yeah, work on. Absolutely. Um, well, I had just gotten back to New York City from Philadelphia, where I had been leading a voter registration trip. And it's kind of hard to get people super excited about voting during the midst of a global pandemic. And we had been staying at the homes of a bunch of retired people, um, you know, in their 60s or 70s. And it felt really unsafe to go out, register a bunch of people to vote, and then all coalesce back at the homes of these elderly people. And they were super kind about it and chill about it. But, you know, I felt like I wanted to get, do something in, in return, if not for them, then for people like them. Um, and similarly, you know, I live in New York and pretty much as soon as I got back from Philadelphia, things started getting real bad. And we went into lockdown mode and I felt like I was seeing my city shut down. And meanwhile, you know, my father is a doctor and he was going into work, working these 19 hour shifts every single day. And I remember just feeling so moved by him and by the other medical professionals and grocery store workers and public transportation workers risking their lives to help out the rest of us during a time when we needed it. And then meanwhile, there I am sitting on my butt watching Netflix, feeling like I've got all this time on my frequently washed hands and there's got to be more that I can be doing to serve my community. And so I know I wanted to do something good, but I didn't know what it was. And that was when I saw a post on Facebook from a friend of mine, uh, another Yale alum, Simone Policano, um, who said, you know, she, she was just saying, Is, does anybody know of a service that I could volunteer for that would deliver food to, to the elderly when they're in need? Because um, I'm looking for some good to do right now. And people were commenting on that post saying, sounds like a great idea. I'd love to volunteer for that. Let me know if you hear of something like that. And no one really seemed to know what that organization was, though. So I reached out. And I said, what if we made that organization? So we built a website, we passed around a couple flyers, we put out the call to action on social media, and within 72 hours, we had over 1,300 volunteers signed up. And we thought, A, that is incredible and such a testament to our community's ability to come together, right, and to do some good in a world that feels so bad. At the same time, it's a huge logistical challenge, and we now need to figure out, you know, okay, it's not us group texting our friends being like, hey, my neighbor Ethel said she needs some food. Anyone want to take it? You know, it, it had to turn into something much more institutional and legitimate very quickly. Um, at the same time, you know, the immediate crisis of COVID-19 was also paired with a growing and emerging crisis of food insecurity. And so when we got our first, you know, $50 donation, I mean, I started freaking out. I was like, what am I going to do with all this money? Right. I'm, I'm a college student. $50 will, you know, buy you a whole lot of pizza and beer, but not much else. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, obviously we have a lot of money. We'll put it back into the community through a subsidy program. 
And so we began a program to essentially offset the cost of groceries by up to $30 per family per week um, for anyone who said that they needed it. We didn't institute any kind of barrier to it because we felt like ultimately you'll either over-include or under-include, and we would rather over-include than limit this service and bar some people who would need it but can't prove that they need it. So we started this program and... You know, the good news was we were able to help a lot of people. It became very popular. The bad news was I think we began the program on day four of our organization and pretty much immediately, um, you know, homeless shelters started calling us, asking us if we could sponsor their entire food budget. 311 was referring people to us. Uh, Bernie Sanders emailed out my personal phone number to his panelist and said, call this number for free food. Didn't specify New York, didn't specify free deliveries, just call this number. And so my phone just started ringing off the hook like, hey, I'm in Fort Worth, Texas. Can you deliver me? Like, no, please leave leave, leave me alone. I'm trying to sleep. Um, and so it, it just quickly grew out of scale. And we were a couple days old. We were shelling out like six times what we were taking in during a day. We would have been bankrupt in like two days. Um, so we had to shut down the subsidy program. But the crisis of food insecurity has continued to an immeasurable degree. One in four New Yorkers is now food insecure. Um, and, and you're seeing, you know, more children who are food insecure, more elderly people who are, it's a real, real problem. And so while we don't necessarily have the funding to solve the world's food crisis ourselves, um, what we do have is a sizable volunteer base. And so we've partnered with food pantries and mutual aid organizations and religious institutions, places that have either food or funding, and then we can provide the people power on the ground to get that food where it needs to go. Um, and so, you know, while this started with a very, you know, simple, some might call it naive dream of, I want to help my neighbors get them the services that they need. It's quickly grown from nascent crisis response into operational nonprofit organization in a remarkably short amount of time. Um, and I think that that is a true testament to the grit and perseverance of our volunteers and the desire of our community at large to do some good right now. Um, I'm curious, um, just hearing you talk about the quick expansion, um, almost like the ballooning beyond like the ability to sustain itself. Uh, what, so I'm just curious if you see, uh, could talk a bit briefly about the sort of advantages of a small scale, because obviously there are quite clear limitations, which is you can't serve New York and Fort Worth, Texas and Daytona all times of night. But um, there must also be some um, advantages, like you're saying, tapping into this uh, this wellspring of, of desire to volunteer and help maybe that if things were organized on a larger scale and it's sort of seen to be someone's like specific job, you know, then that, that wellspring doesn't necessarily get activated as quickly. Would you, would you say? Absolutely. And I think breadth and depth aren't necessarily at odds, but time is limited. And if you're focusing on one, you can't necessarily be focusing on the other. Um, and so when you're faced with the opportunity cost of where do I spend my time, you have to pick, do I want to be a really great mom and pop shop or do I want to go all out and try to be Starbucks? Um, and when we were starting this organization and we were getting outreach from, you know, all across the United States, as well as, you know, Malaysia and Kenya and Mexico and Canada, people wanting to start these organizations there. We were very interested, but we also felt like, look, we're six days old. We don't know what we're doing here. We need to, we don't want to be the fire fest of nonprofits, right? We want to be able to set ourselves up sustainably and then expand. Um, and so I think, you know, the, you don't need to choose between the two, but you need to make sure that you have something to expand before you expand it. And I think that in terms of the on the ground impact, you know, I will say personally, in all honesty, it's it's been tough because I have not had the time to complete deliveries in a really long time. 
And that is the part of the organization that is most fulfilling because it's closest to the ground. It's where you get to see the impact. And so I can look at numbers in a spreadsheet and see, oh, we did X deliveries today or we recruited Y new volunteers today. But that doesn't really give you the same sense um, in your heart of what's happening. And I think that that is a struggle that a lot of nonprofits have to contend with is that you set out with the mission in your heart and then you have to keep your head on straight and and manage it from an administrative point of view, which can take you out of it. Um, and so I think in that way as well, there's a there's a bit of a difference and a disconnect. Um, but, you know, a lot of organizations are, are serving much, much smaller regions than we are, um, particularly a lot of mutual aid groups will serve even a block or a small neighborhood. And while we aren't able to be as, to, to dig our roots as deep into the ground as some organizations like that, what we are able to do is partner with those groups and leverage their resources in their community and provide them with the support that they need, given our resources, our name recognition, et cetera. And so it's a lot of communication with organizations that do have those roots in the ground of their community and seeing how we can be of service to them. So my question was on, you know, there's a, a burgeoning number of challenges that you face that are kind of organizational challenges. Uh, you, so you're talking about with, uh, in the beginning, you know, you're kind of operating on the ground, you're, you're helping people deliver door to door. And then suddenly there's these, all these different kinds of people that you have to manage and, and questions that are coming up and, and par- questions of partnerships, those sorts of things. And it's a, a really different sort of skill set that, that that requires. What um, What's helped you kind of develop that skill set? You know, have you had to do, have you done research that was related to kind of working organizations? Uh, have you done stuff in the past that was related to that? Um, were, there, were there people that you knew that you could contact who could sort of mentor you through this, this process? Um, you know, what, what contributed to your, your navigation of this? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. And, you know, <laughs> I've been very lucky and blessed to be able to attend Yale and, and learn there. But the, the greatest educational experience I've had my entire life has been these past six months. Um, I have learned so much from nonprofit leaders and political leaders and for-profit leaders and leaders in the food insecurity space, whether they have personal or professional experience with it. Um I've learned a lot about nonprofit law from pro bono counsel. You know, so many people reached out in the early days because they saw what we were doing. They liked our mission and they knew that, I, you know, I was a college student. Right. And I well, I had that heart in me. I didn't necessarily have the, the skills or the experience to compensate. Um, and so, you know, it. I was very blessed to have, you know, engineers reach out and say, I can build you this kind of backend system or this app. Um, and, uh, you know, a team of 11 lawyers at a big, uh, law firm say we can be your pro bono counsel, you know? And so they were able to provide me with guidance and advice and also to be frank, sometimes the, the practical action needed to make this organization run to allow us to focus on the mission. And I think that when it comes to nonprofit management, that is often what a lot of nonprofits need because they have to stay laser focused on their mission. And so having kind of uh, ancillary features that other organizations can provide to build out the legal structure or the technological structure um, can, can be a huge boon to an organization like this. And, and, you know, if anything, I think I've learned very clearly that anyone who is successful, and I think Invisible Hands has been successful, no one does it alone. And it has been such a powerful reminder of the power of people and the power of large groups to accomplish great ends. 
um, that change doesn't happen from the top down. It happens from the bottom up. And whether it is political power or, you know, grassroots movements or, you know, just delivering groceries, those are the things that anyone can do and that anyone has the power to make a really substantial impact on. So I have an oblique question, uh, which Love is this. how um, the name of the organization, is it meant to be sort of a reassertion of the idea that uh, Adam Smith uh, discusses <laughs> and sort of a redirection of it, or is it purely coincidental? Um, you know, the origin story of Invisible Hands was it was probably two or three in the morning and neither me nor my co-founder Simone had slept in quite some time. And we, we had been trying to figure out an, organiza uh, an organizational name. One of the thoughts that we had was we were trying to appeal to young people. And um, uh, Simone suggested, instead of Netflix and chill, suggested net fix the ill. And so we promptly turned that one down for a multitude of reasons. But we were, we were, looking, for, we were looking for something else to do. And uh, she literally texted me like two in the morning and just go, I have the text. It's just like invisible hands. What if we called it invisible hands? And I was like, OMG, I love that. Now I must sleep. Um, so while it was not a direct reflection on Adam Smith's language, um, we did, we did realize that later on and, and thought that it actually was somewhat fitting that, you know, we are not trying to compete with Instacart or Fresh Direct or these other delivery organizations. They have paid workers who who need money and we don't at all want to stiff their workers by providing a volunteer service. We want to go where the market can't go. Um, and so in that way, um, I think it's, it is somewhat reflective of the limitations of the market and the need for a vibrant and strong nonprofit sector. Um, but then also the notion of invisible, right? That we are not making direct contact with the people to whom we're serving. We're always staying six feet away. We're wearing masks, we're wearing gloves, et cetera, um, adapting as the CDC guidelines change. Um, and yet, you know, if you look at our logo, it's two hands coming together, right? And it is, this organization is not only about feeding the hungry, but also satiating that deeper hunger that comes with social isolation. That social isolation can be as dangerous as smoking 15 cigarettes every day. And engaged social contact can reduce your risk of an early death by up to 50%. So it has tangible, not only emotional, but, but mental and physical impacts on someone's well-being. And so when we are completing these deliveries, a lot of our recipients are living alone. Um, and, and they just need a friend. I mean, we get calls to the call center all the time from people who say, I don't need food, I just need someone to talk to. People are so lonely right now and they need to know that someone cares about them. And so we're able to provide that, that support system for them. You know, I, I've made so many friends during this pandemic, people I've never met in person, but about whom I know intimate details and who know intimate details about me because we've built this weird kind of bond in this digital era um, through a common recognition of our shared humanity. You know, I got an email actually from a woman just a few weeks ago who, you know, she said she, she lived in Michigan and her father lived in New York and he had been diagnosed with COVID. He was in his eighties. She had no way of reaching him. He lived alone. Um, he had a social worker who used to come by, wasn't coming by anymore. And he had no way of getting food and he was feeling desperate. And she heard about us on TV and she reached out and his volunteer Hunter would come to his apartment every week, drop off food, drop off medicine, 
And then they would just sit on either side of his door and they would just talk about their lives and their fears and their joys. And they became friends. And she said, you know, even though he died and and he passed away of COVID a, a few months after, your volunteer's help was not in vain. And you were able to provide him with some reassurance and relief and comfort and friendship in his last days. So when thinking about the impact, right, a lot of nonprofits, they want quantitative data on the impact that you're having. And that's important. I'm not knocking that. But there are certain intangible factors that have such a ripple effect that when you show someone kindness and decency and friendship, it it spreads and it has a real impact. And right now at a time when the world is pulling us apart, something as simple as delivering groceries can be a really powerful way to pull us together because it's only by pulling together that we'll pull through. Right. And then to, sorry, I don't mean to uh, monopolize guys. This is, this will be my last question for a bit. Um, but to bring it slightly back to, to Yale and the theme of the, the overarching theme of this episode. Um, so here in Saybrook, our head of college is, is uh, Tom Neer. And one of the things he um, really urged students to think about um, at the end of last semester, because of the changes on campus and, you know, how it would not be there, you know, his whole point was that you only get eight semesters at Yale. And so do you want to substitute what he, what could be an inferior semester for one of those semesters? And so he's saying, you know, think about whether next year will be, whether taking the time off uh, a gap year will be an interruption to your um, education, in which case, you know, you can interrupt it and then go, go right back to it, start it again, or versus a disruption. Um, and so that's kind of how I was thinking about people's, that was the framework through which I was for sort of viewing people's uh, decisions to take gap years. But this is kind of um, neither one of those things. It's not quite an interruption. It's kind of an opportunity. It's not, not a disruption either. So I'm curious about how you weighed sort of the... Um, weighed your options or how you went about sort of calculating the calculus of deciding whether to um, try to manage this while you were taking, doing coursework or whether to um, put it off or try to like, you know, try to have someone else work on it. Um, Just how you went about deciding to take the the leap. No, it's a great question. And, you know, for me personally, it was a question of how necessary am I to invisible hands and how necessary is invisible hands to the world. And the answers to both of those questions felt like substantially. Um, And so I decided that it felt like both the educational value of school and the experiential value of school had been drastically diminished. And meanwhile, the opportunity for service had been so greatly amplified that it almost felt like a dereliction of duty to not continue with invisible hands. And it became readily apparent to me that you know, I was working 12 or 13 hour days every day, no weekends, no days off, you know, so it was, there would not have been time to do school as well. Um, and, and certainly not to do it in, in any way that would have provided me with the experience that I want to get out of school and learn a lot and see friends, et cetera. Um, but you know, the truth is a lot of young people aren't returning to college in the fall and, you know, (laughs) some people aren't even allowed back to school. Um, and the difficulty with that, right, more more broadly than just me, is that, you know, we, Gen Z and millennials, are going to bear the brunt of this economic disaster. 
um, as well as this health disaster. Um, and so we are going to find it a lot harder to get jobs. Um, and this is after, right, a lot of millennials were already saddled with the first Great Recession in, in 2008. And so we now are just left scrambling. And yet, as tech-friendly and lower-risk people most in need of a job, I think that millennials and Gen Zers are actually uniquely situated to provide a, a critically needed workforce during this crisis, you know, to, to provide whether it's delivering groceries or contact tracing. We are among the best able people to do that, both, both due to health reasons and just due to our technological adaptability more broadly. And so I think what you're seeing is a lot of young people doing a lot of great work despite the odds being somewhat stacked against them, right? Whether it's, you know, invisible hands or, uh, you know, uh, Avi Schiffman creating, you know, 17-year-olds creating this COVID tracker, um, young people organizing protests against police brutality and racism in the police force, um, or even, you know, teens on TikTok trolling a Trump rally, um, which may not be public service in the most common sense of the word, but certainly I would count it. Um, and, you know, so I think that you you're seeing a lot of young people step up. And I think, you know, there's certainly more that our government can be doing to support that, uh, whether it's by expanding AmeriCorps, you know, creating a youth AmeriCorps. And that's an idea that's been bandied around for a long time. And I think it actually have huge bipartisan appeal, right? It, it promotes a sense of patriotism that is more generally associated with the Republican Party, while also rewarding service and equity, um, which, uh, you know, more typically liberal ideal. And so I think that that could actually be a really fruitful policy to inspire and encourage a new generation of young leaders and also set them up for, uh, you know, job opportunities in the future. Um, so they don't just get passed over because they weren't able to get a job or they weren't able to stay in school right now. Um, so I, you know, for, while for me, it was a relatively easy decision because I had this fantastic avenue through which I could pursue service for a lot of families, there's not that option, right? It's you go to school and we shell out a ton of money for not a whole lot of educational or experiential return, or you stay home and there's not a whole lot of jobs for you. I mean, it's, it's Zugzwang, it's impossible. Um, and I think that the answer to that could really be the pursuit of service to others. And that is, I think, what Invisible Hands has been able to, to activate and, and to strike while the iron is hot. But I think you're seeing a growing movement of people who reject the old notion of when times are bad, you turn it inward, right? You, you stay at home, right? We, we were even being told, be a hero, stay at home. And I understand the importance of distancing, but I think what you're seeing is a lot of young people saying, no, I'm not going to turn inward. I'm going to, you know, be responsible and wear a mask and all that good stuff, but I'm going to look outward and see how I can be of service to others. And, and that's why I ultimately decided to, to take a leave of absence. So earlier we're talking about how, how demanding this work is. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, pressure from different organizations, from individuals calling you. Um, there's a lot of hours that you've, you've put into this, this organization. Um, and it's, it's, it's tough to, to think about your own mental health sometimes, right? So I'm wondering what, what you do for your own mental health, but also, you know, with, uh, with COVID and with taking leave of absence, it's a lot harder to connect with, with friends, with, with current students. You can't see them on campus in the same sort of ways. So what, what sort of things do you do, do to try to stay connected with these different communities um, and, and to take care of yourself uh, when, when you're already doing so much for others? It's a great question. Um, and that's the thing I've been thinking a lot about lately. Um, as we just passed our six month anniversary of the founding of Invisible Hands, and I realized I literally have not taken a day off since that day. Um, 
It has been pedal to the metal nonstop, incredibly invigorating. And that is the kind of work that I like to do that is rewarding for me. Um, you know, before I answer that question, I'll just say, you know, I think a lot of our volunteers, they go outside. It's scary to go outside these days. And they come home and they think like, is this really worth it? Is it making a difference? And then they log into our Slack workspace and they'll go into the job well done channel. And you'll see posts of pictures and cookies and little songs that recipients left for their volunteers, notes of thanks and gratitude and warmth and love. And they realize that it really does make a difference. And then they put back on their mask and they go outside and they do it again. Um, and so I think that part of preserving your, your mental health during something like this is realizing the on the ground impact. And that's a tough thing to do when you're in an administrative role where your time is spent doing, you know, fundraising and setting up your legal structure. That's not stuff where you can immediately see an impact on the ground and you understand theoretically it's important, but it takes you out of it a little bit and it makes you feel like you're still stuck in some dead end job where you're working constantly and you're not seeing any impact. Um, but I think that the more that you can recognize how you've touched other people and be grateful for that, the, the more sustainable your own mental health will be. Um, but I will say, you know, it has been these last few weeks, it has gotten tougher and tougher. Um, I, I've worked harder than I've ever worked in my whole life and I am grateful for that. Um, but it has definitely come at a cost, um, you know, to my family and my friends. I mean, I rarely eat dinner with my own family. I usually eat dinner right here while I'm working. Um, same, same with lunch and breakfast. And so, you know, <laughs> the only time I leave my room is like go to the bathroom and then I come right back and then hop into bed. Um, and so that's, that's definitely been tough. Um, and you, what I'm realizing is the importance of, of self-care that you cannot pour from an empty cup and that if you are going to serve others, you have to make sure you are in a place to do so. Um, I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but there's a, well, it's, uh, it's Rosh Hashanah. I guess I could be thinking about this. Um, you know, they, they talk in, in Judaism about tikkun olam, right? To repair the world. And that is our mission is to pursue justice and to repair the world, um, to make life better for others. Um, but part of that mission is you can't heal the, even if you can't save the world, that doesn't excuse you from doing your little part. But before you can save the world, you have to save your country. And before you can save the country, you got to save your state. And before that, you got to save your city, your block and your family. And before you can do that, you have to take care of yourself. Um, and it is tough when you are trying to be of service to others to also remember to be kind to yourself. Um, and I struggle with that a lot with the, the golden rule is to, you know, treat others as they want to be treated. And sometimes you have to remember, treat yourself like you want to be treated. Um, and that is a tough thing when other people are struggling a lot more than you. And you have to remember that self-care is also in service of that goal of service to others. And so like, you know, tomorrow I'm going to go visit some friends and take a week chill, which I'm very much looking forward to. And it will be lovely. I will get some sleep finally. Uh, praise the Lord. Um, and, you know, and, and hopefully come back refreshed and reinvigorated for the work ahead. And so speaking of sort of uh, navigating the sort of valley between saving the world and preserving oneself um, and the demands that are going to be placed on you next year, I suppose, when you return, you know, what sort of structures are you putting in place or plan, uh, leave, uh, planning to put in place so that the work, the organization, as you're saying earlier, it's, you're 
your essentialness to the uh, um, organization um, at least lessens to the point that you can, you know, finish your uh, your college career here. Yeah. And, you know, it's a fantastic question and one I have not fully answered yet um, in my own mind. And also, you know, one that I think um, will, will require a decent investment of thought. And also, you know, I didn't intend to be a nonprofit executive. I just wanted to help my community. And it was easiest to pursue that through this structure. Um, and I was, in fact, very reluctant to pursue any kind of hierarchical structure. I kind of liked the communist Skynet nature of dealing with things. And then you realize, oh, that is super not an effective way to, for communication or for anything to get done. And so you kind of adapt into this hierarchical structure just out of necessity. Um, but in terms of planning for the future, because I've got one year left and I better finish that freaking year. My parents are going to murder me. Um, so my plan is to, over the course of the next year, decrease the number of hours that I have to work for this organization to run effectively and well without compromising the uh, furtherance of the mission and also raise enough money so that we can hire someone to replace me. So we have, uh, I think, six people on payroll right now, but I'm still a volunteer. Um, and so, you know, the, the goal is that we can keep our budget going and increase the budget sufficiently to pay someone to take over my role so that I can then, you know, serve on the board and obviously in an advisory role. Um, and, and do part-time work, but also pursue my studies and go into whatever field I do essentially, eventually want to go into. Um, so it's about decreasing my hours and then raising the money to compensate someone else to come in and take over for me. Because I don't think anyone, even if we do pay them, is in their right mind is going to work this number of hours um, as, a, as a job unless they are you know, a college student with no family and nothing better to do. So I wanted to touch on your earlier comment on the net fix the ill. I think I'm glad you guys didn't go with it. But yeah, yeah, definitely a good call. Yeah, it's a good call. But at the end of the day, I do think what struck me is you're talking about your blend of sensing your heart and your duty and how it puts plenty of an onus on you and your time schedule. But you also mentioned that it's next week you're going to be able to relax a bit. What are you looking forward to in that, to have a bit of time away from work? And also in these past months, for me at least, I've been at home with my parents. I've realized some hobbies or things I like to do so like Spanish telenovelas, those are great. What do you like or have been able to do? Of course, you have a very busy schedule. What do you look forward to in the next few months or so? That's a great question. I strongly recommend that you watch Jane the Virgin. Fantastic show. My um, mom has. My mom. Okay, fair. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you, you should get into that. Fantastic <laughs> show. Um, I think um, some things I'm looking forward to is honestly what you described, finding hobbies, like when I, when I say that, like, I do not leave this laptop, it is not an exaggeration. And I'm looking, you know what I'm really looking forward to? Looking at something that is more than three feet away from me. <laughs> um, do you ever have that thing where it's not even just Zoom fatigue, but it's just like you close your laptop at the end of the day and you're like, my eyes do not work anymore. I literally cannot see anything around me. I am blind. Um, it's, yeah, it, it's definitely, um, I'm definitely looking forward to, you know, going on hikes and, you know, spending time with people I care about without getting stressed every time I hear my phone ding. Um, and, you know, that is the nature of a crisis response is being consistently on call and people need things immediately and desperately. Um, the unique nature of this crisis is that we are trying to do a crisis response while the crisis is happening. It feels like a little bit sometimes like, you know, 
bringing essential services to people while the tsunami wave is still cresting. Um, and so I think that that makes this crisis unique and makes it uniquely situated for activism fatigue. Um, and so I, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing friends. Um, I'm going to see my roommates who I haven't seen in six months. Um, I'm going to get away from the house, which God love my parents and they've been amazing to me, but I am ready to see some people to whom I'm not directly related. Um, and, you know, it touched back with those relationships because a lot of my friends have, you know, been able to keep in touch during this pandemic and have found new ways of connecting. And I have not been as accessible to them as I would have liked to be. And just to be like, to be completely frank, I think it's, it's frayed some relationships because it has felt to people like I care more about my work than I care about my relationships with them. And that's really tough in a friendship. Um, and so I'm excited to have the time to show the people I care about that I care about them. Um, and I think that we ha are lucky enough to be in a place now where I can do that, not take work off, but take work chill um, and and devote a little bit more time to, to some other things that I'm also passionate about. And also maybe rewatch Chain the Virgin. So good. Literally, if you haven't seen this, is, this is they're not paying me. This is a free plug for Jane the Virgin. Fantastic show. <laughs> That's great. And I know that you, uh, well, I've, I've seen you in, in plays before and I know that you, you know, you, there's much more to you. There's, there, uh, than, than just, you know, invisible hands or just the things that we've talked about. Um, you, you, you have a lot of different kinds of interests, um, and, and things that you're involved in too. So I definitely want to just put that in there into the podcast that, that you, there's, there's a whole host of things that you do. Thank you. <laughs> Well, I, I had a, I had a good director, um, so, and I, well, I'm sad that I, I was planning on doing a show in in the spring until school was canceled um, with with Micah's girlfriend directing. Um, so we were we were very excited for that. But actually, I'm going to see Noel when I go to Colorado this weekend, and we're thinking about doing a, a little reading for our friends. So if you want to tune into that, you're you're more than welcome, Micah. Is this Noel Mercer? It is. Yeah. Do you oh know? yeah, she was in my um, section. I taught uh, that that gateway that everyone has to take uh totally history of the whatever world drama or whatever it is the, like theater studies one ten, yeah, one ten and one eleven precisely i i was going to be a theater studies major when i came to yale and i took that theater studies 110 it was the second day of classes and i fully fell asleep and i was like okay maybe theater studies is not for me after all <laughs> well it moves on from uh the greeks and actually i forget I, I, no from the osiris death play i think yeah yep, yep. <laughs> does sound familiar uh, yeah, it was, it was a rough time. <laughs> right? Are we tapped out? Yeah. So we're we're almost at two forty five. So I don't know if if you guys have any other last questions, Liam. If you have any questions for us too, <laughs> <laughs> it's like a job well, interview. Well, what do you um? You know, I mean, we have to ask you know what is it about this place that you miss the most or do you ever think about this this place being Yale of course the campus um you know I I do I miss the um I miss the feeling of vibrancy and of life um and that that goes for Yale as well as New York City you know and things are starting to return to normal a little bit we'll see how the you know second wave goes um but I, I miss the feeling of things are happening all the time here. Um, and instead, I think a lot of people just feel like this is endless. And, and I remember, you know, we were being told, okay, we're going to shut down for two weeks. And people were like, two weeks? 
what? That's insane. Um, and then now it's like, oh, two weeks. Like, yeah, that's how long you have to wait before you get your COVID test back. And that's how long you have to quarantine for. Right. So now like two weeks, like the, the span of time just doesn't exist anymore. Um, and I think especially for me, you know, the first few days of Invisible Hands, it was like learning how to build a national nonprofit in a week was kind of like the, the crash course I was taking. And so it felt like things were constantly happening. And now that we're in a bit of a more sustainable position, still growing and, and learning how to better serve those that, that we're trying to reach, um, you know, it, it it can feel like a little bit of drudgery sometimes. And I think that is also a feeling that a lot of the community has. And so it kind of seeps into to everyone as well, um, which I think can be tough. But I also think, you know, as I said, young people in particular, but but people of all, you know, young and young at heart are finding new and creative ways to come together and show each other that even though we are all sitting in our own dorms or apartments or pods or whatever, we're not alone, right? Even though we're by ourselves, we're not alone. And there are thousands of people out there, I, I have the stats to prove it, who want to be your friend who want to be your ally, who want to be your partner, who want to stand with you right now and, and be a resource for you. And that gives me hope that even in the darkest of times, even when it feels like the news is always about how scary the world is, and, and rightfully so, it is scary, that if you look a little bit closer, you will be able to see our shared humanity and our ability to pull together and pull through. My name is Kari Husted. I am a rising senior, I guess, technically still, since I've taken a semester off. Um, I'm a film and media studies major. I am originally from Whidbey Island, Washington State, which is like this little teeny island north of Seattle. It's very rural. It's kind of hippieville. It's very different from here. Um, I also am very involved with music on campus. I have taken a turn around the musical theater scene uh, from the side of the pit and from the side of direction. I also conduct the Davenport Pops Orchestra. So that that's me. That's what gives me life on campus. Can I touch on the film studies part? So when I was a naive pre-frosh, um, I had an intensely intellectual and a friend I deeply admire who was a rising sophomore. We met every week in the summer for a weekly tea, and he would recommend me or give me readings, which would be movies. These are great films, but sometimes one of them, if I can remember it well, was an eight-hour-long film which was about an uh, eye of a whale. It was hard to get through, but I really enjoyed the conversations. Um, do you, as a film study and media major, have any film or reading that you, again, really see the intellectual value and enjoy the class discussions, but it was kind of a burdensome thing to get through. Yeah, I think that's probably true for a lot of film and media studies readings. Um, in general, I think the readings can be a lot like that. I've often found that when I struggle with films or readings or something, they seem very dense. They don't seem like they have that much value to someone that's wanting to go into production. I will find that after the fact, much after the fact, I will be looking back on these things that I have studied with greater course knowledge and um, 
greater background knowledge and I will find a lot more value in them. I think that in general, a lot of the heavy theory readings and you know, just pieces of theory in general, a lot of the foundational films, like there was this one that we always watch in uh, intro film studies in film 150, it's man with a movie camera, it's 90 minutes of kind of a kaleidoscopic collage of film. And as someone that hadn't had that much exposure to film theory, that was really tough. Um, it's hard to conceptualize what that could possibly mean for film in general until much later and you have much more context. Just um, kind of picking off backing off of that, the film conversation, I know that, um, you know, filming just in general, it's, it's, it's so much harder to um, produce videos and those sorts of things right now with COVID and, um, you know, requirements with social distancing. And I also know that there's, you know, the film equipment itself is, is quite expensive um, and not always accessible. Um, the, the, you have to, you know, rent equipment from Yale for those things. Um, was that something that was like in a, a factor of you thinking, you know, maybe I should probably take a semester off. It's it's going to be a bit difficult to, you know, do a senior, you know, a senior film project right now because of these limitations. Um, you know, could you, could you walk us through kind of what you're thinking about with that and and ways that, you know, maybe Yale could be a little bit more accommodating um, or just things that, you know, us as, as non film people, um, you know, sh probably should know. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so film definitely was the primary reason that I decided to take a semester off. I want to make a production thesis, so I want to make a short film for my thesis. And generally the process that that requires is the first semester of your senior year, you spend writing and then you go into your second semester and then you make the film. And on a general film set, you have your whole cast and crew. And so I was making one last spring that unfortunately got very interrupted because of COVID. But the film I was making last spring, at times we would have 10 people in a small, small room trying to get these shots. You know, you've got the light team, you've got the camera team, you've got your actors, you have some other people being production assistants on set. And so just with COVID and COVID restrictions, it's not really possible or safe to do those things anymore. And like you were mentioning, Micah, um, film equipment is very expensive. Um, the cameras that we're working with as film students, not even on professional levels, but the, the cameras we're working with as film students are tens of thousands of dollars. And you really need those to get any sort of good quality film or for myself as I'm trying to build a portfolio because that's what will get me hired in the future in these areas that I want to go into, you won't get a portfolio of things that are worthy of looking at or that anybody at a studio or even an indie film company will look twice at without good enough quality equipment. And there's some understanding about that because the cost is so prohibitive, but, you know, doing a phone film or doing like shaky footage, unless that's a stylistic choice you're going for, is often not considered a serviceable piece of art. Um, and so also Yale has completely restricted access to cameras and other sound, you know, lights, equipment, all of the stuff that they have for rent at the 
CCAM, which is where we get most of our film equipment. Um, they're only making it available to students in classes. They're only making it available to small, like single person things. And as someone that really wants to do narrative, especially fiction narrative film, that's just not so possible. So I, I'm trying to find other ways to do that over the summer. So I, I went home over the summer and my sister is an actress. And so while we were on our island home, I was like, what, what can I do this summer? How can I take advantage of this? You know, in New Haven, it's hard to get to rural sets or scenes. That's, you know, very traditionally kind of a big barrier in student filmmaking on college campuses. It's like everything you make looks like it was shot on a campus. Um, so when I was like, when I was home, I was thinking, what can I do? How can I do this differently? And so we, I bought some cheap equipment, you know, very guerrilla style filmmaking, nothing that's going to hold up in the face of, you know, the cinema of history or anything, but it was my professor, John Andrews had a couple recommendations for how you can work on some filmmaking in a lower budget scale. And we hauled gear out to the beach. I used like my childhood telescope tripod instead of like a camera tripod. We had like a ladder and my dad's, uh, he has a crutch because he has a prosthetic leg. So we like strapped like a crutch to a ladder and attached a sound recorder to that, you know, stuff like that. But ultimately I don't want to do my thesis that way. Ultimately I really need to use great equipment for that. So that was a bit long-winded, but that, that was a lot of what went into the decision of me taking the semester off. In your time when you were still at home, and again, an island, um, you know, physically conscious image of isolation, um, wondering as well for you, now you're in New Haven, but how have you been able to keep in contact with your friends, not only your craft? Because as Adam was mentioning, you've been able to enhance some skills, so still be able to work with your sister. But how have you tried to just keep in touch with others um, in this time of just complete distance. So it's definitely a challenge, as I'm sure it is for everyone. I definitely can be a bit of an out of sight, out of mind kind of person. And though I'm always thinking about my friends and wanting to spend time with them, I'm not always super great on the follow through, as I'm sure is a common story for many people. So I've tried to stay involved with extracurriculars that I have been involved with on campus. Um, I'm still conducting the Davenport Pops Orchestra as we go virtual. I'm still involved with some other organizations like the Progressive Party. Um, I'm just trying to make connections that way. I actually have, I'm fortunate in that I have three really close friends of mine that are also sweet mates that have chosen to take this semester off. Um, and a few of them are in the area. And so we have been able to bond over this shared experience, the, the gratitude that we made this choice and the little things scratching at the back of our heads with the FOMO. Um, I have spent a lot of time on Zoom. When I was still at home, um, I spent so much time with my family. Again, I'm sure a very common story. My family is very loud and in everyone's business. There's not a lot of privacy, not a lot of alone time. Many, many hours of the day were spent in close proximity to my other family members, doing fun things or not so fun things. <laughs> 
Yeah, I was wondering um, if you could tell us a little bit more about your nonprofit work, just seeing that, you know, it's, this is a really important time for nonprofits, um, just in, in the sort of election year sort of scheme and in terms of, you know, conversations about um, Black Lives Matter, about underrepresented groups, groups that are affected by COVID. Um, this is, seems like such a great time for young people to get involved with these sorts of organizations. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about your, your experiences and, and what you're working on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I also at this moment, I kind of felt like I just I had to do something. I had to put my time and energy where my mouth was. And so here I am working at this nonprofit. Um, so the nonprofit is called More Like America. And the idea is that we are trying to elect representatives that are more like America. And so specifically what that means is that we're committed to providing aid or campaign support to um, candidates who are women, candidates who are people of color, and candidates who are LGBTQ+. So all of our candidates um, fall into one or multiple of those categories. And we are specifically focused on swing states. Um, our, our main priority is to flip red seats. And so we are mostly operating in Florida, Michigan, North Carolina, and Arizona. And then we have a federal candidate who is from Virginia, and we also have a federal candidate from Texas. So that's it's definitely a very fulfilling use of time, I think. It's, um, I wouldn't want to be doing anything else right now. I think at this moment in time, this is where I need to be. And I think, I hope that people are committed this fall to these causes. I hope people follow up. I hope people go to the ballot box. I hope we have a tide that has unlike what has ever been seen before. I want to tie together your comments on time. You're mentioning how this year is a good time of reflection for you to really decide not only to get your craft in terms of video making skills, but also to make this crucial decision or to think more about the two paths you possibly have for the future. Um, how do you see your work with this nonprofit as well as your creative capacities as in harmony? Yeah, so there are a lot of great opportunities to use my creative skills in this nonprofit, um, which I'm very much grateful for. It's a pretty small nonprofit, uh, hopefully blossoming. So I think that's one big advantage of that. Um, I'm a firm believer that change comes in the form of two different ways. And one of those is through electoral politics. And one of them is through much more grassroots change. And I think culture and media is a huge part of that grassroots change. And, it, you know, it, it's hard to measure what things have the precise amounts of impact in everything. But I think it might be possible that our media and filmmaking or TV shows, songs, you know, art that has perpetuated throughout our culture, perhaps has more influence on change, or at least it's very crucial in terms of getting our cultural consciousness to a place where that change can be seen in electoral politics. And I think this semester I am 
I am learning so much about what change looks like in these final stages of how it gets to the uh, representatives, how it gets to our candidates, how it gets to people that are on the floor of places where change is made. And I think that's a really valuable lesson for me in terms of where we need to apply pressure, where we need to learn and grow as a society um, in order for that to manifest in these types of changes. And so moving forward in my life, in my career, I really hope that I can work on artistic projects that contribute towards that kind of positive change, um, that I can use this knowledge of where, where we need to push for change, of what kinds of challenges we run into in terms of not progressing in a, a in our electoral politics, in terms of how we get hung up because our candidates aren't truly representative of our country. And I think that, yeah, I want to continue to work on the cultural end of things to help make that change. So I have a question. We're not quite at the 545 mark. Um, and this may seem like a conclusive question, but please, everybody, you know, continue with uh, as, as you see fit. But um you know, one of the interesting things about taking a gap year um, in the middle of one's sort of Yale career is that you can kind of, it's, it's almost like you can have a glimpse of what a post-Yale or post-college sort of life uh, is, might be like without graduating, uh, yet, without yet having graduated. And so I'm curious, um, just in your own experience, um, what are some of the aspects of life on campus or life as a student um, at Yale or more generally that you've seen now that you'd like to continue or somehow that you either have, you think have affected you um, in a way that you'll think you'll try to incorporate them mo uh, moving forward or that you could sort of appreciate about campus life um, or life at college? And then what are some of the things maybe that you'll happily say goodbye to about, um, you know, being on a, on a college campus, you know, once you're not tethered to it uh, anymore? Um, yeah, definitely. I think... One thing is that I really love to pursue projects. I'm definitely a one thing at a time kind of person. And as I as I have sort of said, I the one thing at a time that I pursue, I want to contain many elements and cover many different interests and things. But ultimately, I really like working in the service of one goal and really working hard for something specifically. And it is really nice to be able to take this time and say that I am asserting my whole self and all of my energy towards uh, furthering one goal and one, one pursuit of the common good. And I think that is something that I appreciate about not being in classes. I, I know that I find um, that while I really enjoy my classes, one of them will especially seize my consciousness and interest and I will feel like that's the only thing I should be committing myself towards or I'll be making an extracurricular film or something and it will feel like everything else is a distraction from doing that. And I think that's one thing that's nice about working and, you know, spending eight hours of your day doing this one thing. Um, I'm sure this is more to do with being in the middle of a pandemic than just working life in general. But I do miss being able to get up and go and have a meeting in 
Sterling and then, you know, take my lunch and read some articles and then go to another meeting or go to a class where I can do things that are very hands-on. I think it is nice um, to be able to think about how I want to use my day and feel like I really own my day. And yeah, um, and that's definitely not common to all working situations, but I feel like I can decide with my day what is the best thing for me, or what is the best way for me to accomplish all of the things that I need to do? What What is the goal I need to serve at the end of the day? I think um, I miss being amidst campus culture. I miss being amidst the hustle and bustle. I miss being amidst all my friends. I missed running into tons and tons of people that you see and know all the time. I miss that very, I, I do miss the insularity actually. I miss the knowing that you have at the base level some very specific things in common with something else and reaching out for that connection will not be that difficult. It, it's a simple way to start at least. I think one thing that campuses really get right is the sense of community. And I think it, it is scary to me and disappointing that we aren't able to maintain that throughout life in the same ways, that we aren't able to maintain this one community of people that all live together and you can just run across the block and, you know, borrow your sugar or talk about some idea that you want to realize together. Um, I think that is something really special about being on a campus and it's something that I think we could as a society figure out how to hang on to that, but we're not there yet. Yeah, that's interesting. I've been watching this old show from the early 90s, Northern Exposure, and um, from, 90, I think, 90, 91, 92, and there's an episode, you know, when uh, someone's... Uh, decides to buy a washing machine, washer and dryer, and everyone goes to the, to the laundromat. And um, she eventually gets lonely and sort of the philosophizing guy says, you know, it won't be long before, you know, first we were in sort of public houses, ale houses, we shared the bathrooms, everyone kind of did everything together. But then convenience led to sort of appliances, and then we sort of had our own homesteads. And he says, you know, it won't be long before we have uh, just sit in the living room, turn on the hookup to the fiber optics and bliss out. We don't have to cook. And it's, it's amazing how prescient uh, he was right at the outset of uh, the Internet. But uh, I think that's a very astute observation that you make about um, sort of the, the pandemic sort of bringing into relief everything that um, everything that is lost when you have complete convenience and complete iso uh, isolation. Um, you know, we're grateful that we can meet with you over Zoom, right? But then what 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 do we lose with gaining and what do we gain by by losing, I guess, is, as you point out, is a very, um, very stark reminder of we have now with COVID. Absolutely. I'm I'm grateful that we have figured out these or that we have ironed out the details in these modes of living, these ways that we can make life more convenient. And I know that for some people, like people with disabilities, that accommodations like Zoom can be hugely life-changing. And I'm also afraid that everything we do is going to move to virtual meetings because I really appreciate the value of being in person with people and 
you, you know, the, the mind melds, just the sense of presence that you can have when you're in the room with people. Yeah. Um, building off Adam's example, um, this is from literature. It's a book called Memory Police. And I bet Adam knows it. It's a Japanese novel. Um, people are just, the memory police take people's memories selectively as time passes over months and months. And I feel that somewhat similar here of I've gotten a very particular um, eye for some things that I see on a daily monotonous basis of, you know, walk through the neighborhood. I know exactly where that flower is. It may change an inch, but I'll notice it. But other things on Zoom, it's just this fatigue um, that sets in and then just leads to a gradual forgetting. You mentioned uh, stuff about Yale specifically, but also back to your hometown or anything that you worry either about COVID specifically in these months or just going forward in this very liminal space we live in, of things you might miss or forget you're worried about. Yeah, uh, being from a small town that is definitely not in the same world that Yale is all at all is a very interesting experience. And I think in this time, there are a few things that have been thrown into sharp relief for me. And some of those things are things I really miss about my hometown, things I think my hometown got very right. And also there's this, you know, kind of increasing irrational sense of dread. Like I will never get out of my hometown. I'm going to be stuck here forever. The whole Yale thing was all a dream. I'm waking up now, coming back to real life. Um, which, you know, I know in my rational brain, that's, that's not true. That's not going to happen. But uh, despite that, sort of existential dread. I think those beautiful things about my hometown really have come to the forefront. And I think that has been, in this moment of re reflection, that has been very valuable in terms of thinking about the things that I want and need in life. Um, my hometown has a very unusual sense of community. I think, as I mentioned before, we're my hometown is kind of lots of very hippie types. We have, you know, uh, lots of summer street fairs. We have people will have these like Renaissance festivals, Christmas fairs well, where people will make their own candlesticks. And um, lots of people live in these sort of commune things where they have you know, they have their house, but the washer and the dryer, the dining area are in a separate building. And amongst all the houses are the cow fields and they, they needle felt their little Christmas ornaments and sometimes sweaters and things. And I think there's something really delightful about that. It's slower. It's much slower and it's much more at peace, I think. And I think especially in the time of COVID, this weird time where time seems to slip through so quickly and yet stand completely still. I think reflecting on the spaces that are fast moving like Yale or New York or much of the Northeast in general and spaces that are not so quickly moving, it's just a really interesting thing to go about doing. Um, 
And in my opinion, the world should move more slowly. I think we all would be much happier. I think it'd just be a different world, a better world, perhaps. Okay, Isabella, let's start by having you describe yourself in a few sentences. My name is Isabella Smeets, and I was born and raised in New York City. I'm currently on my gap year, and I'm a part of the class of 2025. I'm hoping to double major at Yale in classics and history. Great. Thanks for that brief intro, Isabella. Um, we know that since um, leaving for home, you've kept yourself quite busy with internships and classes. Could you speak a bit more about your work with Sweet Reader as well as the Yale Review? Um, also, how have you kept up with DS, even though you're not taking the seminars right now? Yeah, definitely. Um, this fall, I'm doing a few different activities. Um, I'm volunteering for Sweet Readers, which is a non-for-profit organization that pairs middle school students with adults living with Alzheimer's. I've been involved since seventh grade. So in middle school, I volunteered with the program. And once I got to high school, I joined the leadership council. And in my last two years of high school, I was the co-president for the leadership council. I organized different fundraising events and I helped bring a Sweet Readers community to two locations in Canada. Another activity I'm also doing is taking online courses for ancient Greek. I got exposed a little bit to ancient Greek in my last year of high school, but it was quite a minimal exposure and I really want to familiarize myself with it to prepare to take classics at Yale. Um, I'm also volunteering with the Yale Review on a part-time basis and I've really enjoyed that. It's just started but it's an activity I definitely want to continue throughout my time at Yale. And I also was able to still be a part of the Yale Historical Review. And I feel so lucky to have the chance to be involved with the publication even during my gap year. That's mostly for the fall and this semester. Um, for my next, I'm not completely sure yet. I'll definitely keep working with Sweet Readers, the Yale Review and the Yale Historical Review. Um, but I'm also looking at some programs abroad. Maybe I'll take another ancient Greek course or do something with French. And I'll probably spend some time with my family abroad as a lot of them live in Europe. Thanks. I'm actually uh, curious about the Yale Review, but also about Sweet Readers. Just uh, could you talk a little bit more about how you became involved with it and, and um, what, what that work is like? Um, both, you know, managing, helping run it, um, but also sort of the work itself of reading um, with the people with Alzheimer's. Yeah, it's a really special program. I honestly fell in love with it in middle school, and that's what propelled me to join the council. Basically, you'd meet once a week with an adult living with Alzheimer's, and you'd do different humanities-based activities with them. Some of them run in schools, but a lot of them run in museums in normal times. I did my program at the Jewish Museum, which was um, across the street from my school, and we would look at artwork one week, and the other week we would do some sort of art activity. 
And actually this year during my internship, um, I'm having the opportunity to design my own curriculum for sweet readers. They're doing this 60s theme. So I'm thinking of doing something with poetry, maybe an Allen Ginsberg theme. So I really enjoyed it in middle school, but you can only be in the programs in middle school. So once I got to high school and beyond, I would help make those programs happen in other places. Like in Canada, I would find a school, an elder care center, um, and kind of set up the Sweet Readers community and pilot the sessions so the school could carry it out themselves. And I really enjoyed that because I enjoyed the program so much in middle school. It was great to be able to give that experience to other middle schoolers and kind of expand the program in different schools. That's actually sort of similar to something that came up in um, both of the other interviews. I guess the sense of the way the sense of time changes or what you do with your time changes because of how a little bit more free you are without coursework. So how would you say specifically, let's say, um, even though I know you're taking the Greek and Latin courses, um, has your, I guess, is your reading sort of, are you, do you feel like it's becoming more preparatory? Do you feel like you're just able to sort of pursue other things that are sites of reading and spend your time on things that uh, maybe you won't have as much time to once you're uh, here or, um, or, or not otherwise? Yeah, definitely. I do have to say, I never thought about taking a gap year before COVID, but I definitely welcome it at the moment. I never thought that I was in need of this time to learn and at the same time focus on some more personal and non-academic goals. I've started running again, playing tennis in Central Park. I'm even helping my sixth grade sister with her Latin and French and also spending some time with my grandmother and my baby cousins. My grandmother is Persian actually, and she's been trying to teach me some Farsi, which I do welcome. I actually seeked her help last year in my senior year because I did an independent project on the poet Hafez, but it's been really nice to have a chance to talk with her and learn some Farsi um, in a relaxed setting just for pleasure. I want to touch on that last word, um, pleasure. How have you relaxed during this time? I know you mentioned you've been reading more, spending time with family. Anything else you've been taking advantage of with this as Adam said, this time you have away um, from campus and regular classes. Yeah, um, during quarantine, I bike daily while listening to music and I'm still doing that. And I find it a great way to release stress and relax. I actually even started rewatching Gilmore Girls after getting accepted to Yale. I love that show when I was younger in ninth grade and I felt it funny um, watching it, knowing I get some time in New Haven as well. Um, my mother always wanted me to read a favorite book of hers, a Russian novel, um, Quiet Flows the Dawn by Mikhail Shokolovov. I never had the time. It is four, novel, four volumes and quite large, but I'm really looking forward to have the time to read it this year, as it'd be great to have the time to talk about, with her about it. Yes, you mentioned the issues we may face during winter when it gets a bit colder. Um, you also noted how you may go abroad. Um, could you elaborate a bit more on your possible plans to look beyond New York and travel even farther, continue with Adam's idea of space and time together? Uh, yeah, I, has to, I have to wait and see if Europe is safe. Um, but I took French all throughout high school for eight years, and I really enjoyed that. And I think I want to study it at Yale as well. So I was thinking of going to France for a bit 
and getting that experience to become truly fluent. Um, so I'm trying to look into programs like that, but it is very difficult to plan things these days as you never know if it's going to be safe, um, if you'll be able to go and have a good experience there. Yeah, I'll mention offhand that one of the things, uh, you know, I live in um, Saybrook, so I live sort of among the first years who are here and living in the college rather than on old campus, is that, uh, you know, for the first time in a long time, um, I think since the Second World War, you know, the students, uh, the, the, the first years are here in the colleges, and there's sort of very serious sort of strictures on their life, right? And so, in a way, this presents an opportunity for each of the four years uh, as sort of Yale unfolds and blooms again after sort of partially closing off uh, from the first year on to be sort of better and better or more fuller and fuller experience for, for this uh, class of first years. Um, and so this is a, an elaborate way to ask, I guess, what are you looking most uh, forward to? Um, seems like you're enjoying and making very much making the most of your time, uh, your gap year. But um, what are you specifically maybe not necessarily missing or lacking, but looking forward to most about uh, being able to uh, be on campus and, and in this sort of milieu uh, of college? Yeah, I was also always really excited to start my time at Yale and start university in general. And I feel like the whole world right now has really reflected on the things that are most important. And I think if there are in-person elements, which I'm hoping for, I'm going to appreciate them along with everyone else all the more. So yeah, I'm really excited to start my time at Yale next fall. And while I'm not sure that everything will be back to normal, I feel prepared to start my time there next year after this um, year away, no matter the circumstances. And I'm particularly looking forward to the Directed Studies program. And I'm really hoping to have some of the events or seminars in person for that. This is a bit open question also, I guess, to Adam too. Um, what do you look forward to most in reading DS? Because all three of us, or Adam and I both took it and you're, you're going to do it. Um, I could give my perspective too, but I'll, I'll defer to Adam first, I guess, because you, you have a bit more time to reflect, you know, years for the thoughts to really work in your mind. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so what I enjoy, unfortunately, what I enjoyed, I'll, I'll interpret the question broadly, like what I enjoyed uh, about the reading and then how it, how it's the sort of strands of it, it's half-life in my conversation and thoughts and, and work practice from day to day. Um, it, I, I have to say, uh, to this day, even including grad school and research trips to Tibet, um, it has been the fastest, uh, the most amount of information, uh, sort of ideas and ways of thinking uh, and ways of expressing myself in a, in as concentrated amount of time is probably since I was, uh, you know, uh, fresh out of the womb and, you know, you're learning actually talk about time and space, learning how to make sense of the world and how to breathe and coordinate, you know, I'm sure that was a much more dense learning, steeper learning curve. But other than that, in an academic sense, um, uh, it's just almost over, you know, almost overwhelming. Uh, it's almost like, um, Oh, what is the the movie where the cyborg plugs in and just downloads all this information and it's almost faster than he can process it? So um, it's not quite that, but I would say just that environment of discussing these things and everything being so fresh and new was was just 
a very live academic experience uh, for me. Um, I, I enjoyed that aspect of it. Uh, specifically, I would probably say I most enjoyed the historical and political thought readings because that was my whole sort of leaning. Um, even though I tended to do uh, get <laughs> do much better in the literary courses, um, uh, if if papers or anything to go by. Uh, um, but what it's the way it sort of lingers <laughs> in my life is it makes my writing process a bit more cumbersome because I'm, I'm used to, I have this desire to sort of know everything I want to say and read everything I want to read before I begin, which is, means when you begin, there's a lot more momentum, but it also means that there's a lot, it takes a lot of effort to get that momentum, you know, to get to that point. Um, it also means people think you're wise, but obtuse and not necessarily uh, engaging because you'll mention things uh, and then you have to realize you realize that you have to explain who this uh, who uh, this uh, what this work by Nietzsche is, what Ece Homo is or who Zarathustra is. And then you have to explain why it was relevant. And then by that point, you've either turned off, shut down the conversation or you've opened it up in a significant way. So it remains this sort of risky uh, proposition, but you know, it's the same. It's what they say about education and it's humanistic education in general, which is that it populates your mind, um, even in solitary moments with these sort of like conversations you can have when you encounter something new. So that's the, the, probably the most lasting and beneficial aspect that I enjoyed most and enjoyed most at the time is being in conversation and having this sort of cloud of, of, of different approaches to the world and different types of thinking that you can bring with you uh, all over the place. Sorry, that was a bit long-winded, but <laughs> I think that's that's pretty much in, that pretty much encapsulates my thoughts about DS. Yeah, I mean that's what you can look forward to now, Isabella. I think um <laughs> yeah. Years. Much much more finesse. Yeah, years <laughs> of uh, stilted. No, I'm kidding. Uh, you know, it depends on how, you know, I'm not necessarily the least clunky uh, introducer of, uh, you know, Emma Bovary into conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's a 50-50 chance if a conversation goes well or not, the <laughs> way you're framing it. Yeah. But yeah, better than 25-75. Um, mm, mm, mm. Yeah, for yeah. me, um, I do wish that I had a background in classics, and that's why I think you'll be prepared well, Isabella. Have you encountered in your classes you're taking now anything you think either coming at a second time or for a first um, that you find particularly resonant or moving this cannot they can have like no relation to ds at all well actually when you were asking what i'm most looking forward to in ds of course my answer may change after i've actually done the whole year-long program but i think what i was attracted to by it was in a way the fast-paced nature because I had read a couple of the texts before, but only parts in my Latin class. I took Latin for about seven years and I loved it. But when we would read sections of the Aeneid or sections of the Metamorphosis, because the language is so difficult, 
you would spend a long time on shorter passages. You just weren't able to just pick up the book and read it cover to cover. So in a way, I guess some people could say, why would you take DS if you know classics? Why would you read these great works in translation when you could technically read them in Latin or ancient Greek? But for me, I think it's an incredible opportunity to be able to read all of these texts at a fast pace, all in dialogue with each other, and to have that foundation going into classics. Because I don't think any classics major could ever pick up the Aeneid and read it cover to cover the way you could read a translation. So I think it'll be a different reading process and I'm really looking forward to that and being able to experience those texts in conversation with other texts and without the, just the joy of the Latin language. So I guess just getting down to the ideas of the text in conversation with the others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And is there um, anything in particular, is there any particular work uh, you re you've read uh, that, or author that speaks to this sort of moment of, uh, I wouldn't call it isolation exactly, but let's say, let's just call it a pandemic and sort of great change in life. I mention it because I, when I was in Tibet last year, I, we were on, all traveling on this bus. It felt very literary, and I was actually reading the Decameron about these uh, 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 Florentines, these for citizens of Florence during the plague of that, at that time. They all went north and sort of told stories to escape. And so that was my sort of literary touchstone a few months ahead of time because I read it a couple months before uh, the first cases were discovered in, in uh, identified in Wuhan. But I'm just curious if there's anything uh, you've read that, you know, sort of you'd recommend hey, you should read this at this time, or just anything um, you've come across in your courses that is interesting that you think uh, listeners might benefit from kind of reading either in translation or, or, or not. I feel like it's cliched because it's one of the most famous Latin texts, but I really enjoyed the Aeneid. And my teacher, I studied it in junior year in Latin, he loved picking out quotes that could be applicable to our lives. And I feel like the Aeneid can really be helpful to anyone going through any sort of rough time, especially now with the global pandemic, that's a pretty difficult time for all of us to live through. I think there's a quote he always picked out, um, perhaps one day it will even be pleasing to remember these things. I think it's said as Aeneas is about to die on a ship with all his men and they're just have been suffering for years and years with no promise of ever going back home. I feel like in the in the Odyssey, Odysseus is suffering, but he always knows he's trying to get back home, trying to see his wife. But Aeneas, he has nothing to look forward to in a way besides more suffering and more war because he's told he has to fight a war. So it's a pretty bleak book when you think about it. So I think Honestly, the scenes of that can be really applicable to whenever you feel like you're going through a dark time, like a pandemic, thinking that even remembering times of the pandemic will one day be pleasing for you. And one day you can look back at the good things. That's great. I, it, it brings to mind my, a very good friend of mine who's in TD. Um, I think... I think I recall her saying that the, I asked her what the motto of TD was once, and she said something like, maybe one day this will be, you'll look back, and, and clearly it's it's this quote from the Aeneid, and so she always understood it. It's kind of like the the sort of uh, the curse or the, the, um, the, yeah, I guess kind of basically became the curse of a croesus, right? Like if you enter, if you 
proceed with this campaign and empire will fall. But it's interesting because it reads on two levels. And I like your, your sort of, uh, optimistic, uh, reading of it rather than my friend's sense that like, what it means is that you're on a downward slope and this, no matter how deep it is, the future is going to be much worse. So you'll look back at this as, as much better. But uh, no, I think you have the much, obviously, the, the much more, uh, I think, on the nose reading, which is, uh, which is a hardening sort of take on not, a, not even this, just, just this moment, but uh, as you say, sort of life as a whole, human history as a whole. Yeah, I think bright college years is actually just really a symbol of it's bright now and it dims. <laughs> uh, as the as the misattributed quote <laughs> to Mao, it's always darkest. The night is always darkest before it goes completely black. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to um, shift away too much from your, I think, very poignant reflections on Aeneas and making bringing sense and meaning to um, TD's motto, if it is actually that. But I also have to mention that I watched Gilmore Girls too when I was a senior in high school, when I knew I got into Yale. Um, I didn't finish it, I'll be honest. I got through a few seasons and I stopped a bit much. But any other shows that you're watching now to relax um, and perhaps escape from the times when you're not reading the Aeneid? Yeah, I have a 12-year-old sister, as I mentioned, so we like trying to find um, more tween-friendly shows that she could watch with us as well. And our whole family watched The Good Place with her, which is actually a really interesting show. One of the main characters is um, a philosopher, studies philosophy. So uh, there's actually some parts of it that I've really enjoyed, and it's definitely a funny show. Um, that really takes you away from the time. I think the fourth season is out on Netflix now, so I'll definitely be watching that with her. A good place. Uh, sorry, is that the one... Um, that's not the one sort of set in this... Oh, no, I'm going to reveal how clueless I am about pop culture, where there's like a village in the woods and no one knows what's going on outside? No, okay. <laughs> Never mind. No, it's basically about um, human beings dying and being sent to heaven, or what they think is heaven. What they find out is actually not the good place, the bad place. And it goes on from that. It gets quite complicated. Uh, but it's, okay. it's definitely a fun watch. I recommend it. I'll put it on the queue. Yeah, it's like a nice little DS refresher, you know. You've got you've got a bit of Nietzsche, you've got a Eke Homo. If you, need, if you need a bit of a way to get back to... <laughs> you've, de you've definitely got Milton Satan, right? The mind is a place of its own. It can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven, yeah. Yes. Um, is there anything else you're excited for, Isabella? I mean, you're plenty to do now. I know you're going to be taking DS, you're going to be coming back to New Haven in august um what else are you optimistic about it seems you have plenty of reasons to be um this is a general open question uh well i'm optimistic that even if things for some reason don't improve from today with the whole um COVID situation i still feel like having had a year to go through it that yale will handle it even better next year and I think that life will get better because Yale and the whole world will um, know how to handle this new normal. So I'm optimistic about that. 
I'm looking forward um, to starting next year, definitely. And now for a little bit of global background, um, rather than narrate an ongoing story and bog down the podcast, we can summarize. Uh, by the time the disease was identified, it had already spread and borders were closed and quarantine procedures put in place around the world. Recriminations were made and more notably than perhaps any time ever, humankind has embarked towards the common end of limiting the spread of the disease and discovering a curative treatment. Uh, but this effort has not been without competition and suspicion and the expectation of future preeminence, glory, or profit. Um, safety may be first, but why not safety with glory and the moral high ground, if at all possible? Um, so as of September 28th, there are 33.2 million globally acknowledged and confirmed cases and 999,000 attributed deaths uh, due to COVID. Um, in Connecticut, uh, those numbers are 56,587 uh, cases, 4,501 deaths. Uh, in New Haven County, those numbers are 14,340 cases and 1,115 deaths. Um, and the United States as a whole is responsible uh, has uh, reported uh, 7.14 million cases and 205,000 deaths. Uh, Yale, since August, um, has registered uh, in total uh, 20 um, uh, cases, positive cases, uh, no uh, correlating uh, deaths. Um, uh, and of these 20 cases, um, 15 our students. Uh, this information can be tracked uh, as long as the site is up at covid19.yale.edu slash Yale hyphen statistics. Now for a snapshot of Yale. The most notable change to campus life has been online classes, which have all been held through the video conferencing software Zoom. This is a continuation of the course setup from the spring term of 2020, back when campus was mostly closed. The following information is based on reporting by the YDN. Compared to the typical on-campus housing rate of about 84%, or about 5,000 undergraduates, this term there are about 1,800 students on campus at Yale dorms at a rate of 36%. 1,500 are off campus in New Haven, not counting sophomores, all of whom were not considered not in residence. And this is an overall 79% increase over the normal rate of off-campus living. 15% of students declined to enroll for the term, and 1,700 are remote, away from New Haven. Of course, this is partly by design. The university issued guidelines over the summer for reopening. The dorms are open to first years in the fall, sophomores in the spring, and juniors and seniors both terms, both on campus and off, and to students with special permission. There is a partial reduction in room and board for the diminished semester, since campus will close again with the arrival of Thanksgiving break. The Yale College calendar has adapted to the exceptional circumstances. Instead of the usual two-week shopping period, undergraduates only had a week to finalize their courses. Without the usual October recess, students will also have to maintain their Zoom stamina 
without respite until November. Despite these shifts to the semester, Yale College will return to usual letter grade policies, with no provision for a universal pass-fail system. As Yaleys living in New Haven adapt to this virtual learning environment, they also need to acclimate to public health regulations. All students registered in New Haven also participate in Yale's COVID-19 screening program, which involves twice-weekly testing, physical and social distancing regulations, and isolation protocols and contact tracing in case of a positive test. On the whole, the fall will resemble no other at Yale College. In addition to these changes, extracurricular activities have had to adapt to social distance guidelines. Theater and acapella groups are shifting to virtual formats, and sport teams are focusing on training rather than games. All students registered and in New Haven must sign and abide by the Community Compact, a document regulating social behavior and testing. For the first time since World War II, Old Campus is not being used primarily to house students beginning their first year in the college. Instead, it is to host college juniors. We would like to thank Liam Elkind and Kari Hustad for speaking with us in this first episode. If you like what you've heard from Liam Elkind, please feel free to visit the site invisiblehandsdeliver.org. Our next episode will be on the election year.